Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 157. I'm your host, Nicola seaton Clark, and before we get started, we have a quick announcement to make. Nominations are open for the 2017 Parsec Awards, and the Triple F is eligible for the category of Best Speculative Fiction Story, Small Cast, Short Form. If one of the stories we've aired since May the 1st, 2016 struck a chord with you, feel free to nominate it via the Parsec Awards website. The author and narrator appreciate the recognition, and so too do the staff here at the Triple F. So, on to this week's show. Once again, we have a work of stirring fiction for your ears. This week's tale is Another Beginning by Michael McGlade. Michael is a freelance writer living in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He has more than 80 short stories published in such journals as The Saturday Evening Post, Hennessy New Irish Writing, Shimmer, Aries Magazine and Grain. He holds a master's degree in English from the Seamus Heaney Centre at Queen's University in Belfast. He is a professional member of the Irish Writers' Centre. Represented by the Blake Friedman Literary Agency, he is currently writing his debut novel. His story is read by Kian McMahon in his Triple F narrating debut. Kian is an Irish software engineer who, in a past life, was the world's youngest professional podcaster, ran a radio station and very nearly ended up being a journalist. While he hopes to someday revive his show, which pod faded many years ago, he now spends most of his free time playing about with cameras and cooking, as old microphones and sound desks lurk in the shadows right at the edge of eyesight. Michael and Kian can both be found online via the links in our show notes. And now, Another Beginning by Michael McGlade. Ogon is a magpie, but he wasn't always a bird. An Interrupted Beginning Ogon is 21. He is studying history at Queen's University, Belfast. Succumbed to a powerful drug fugue in his dorm room, he is paralysed, 
unmoving for a whole day except that within himself, he's travelling through Indonesia, a trip he and his fiancée Niev have meticulously planned for years, and which they intend to take after graduation. When he eventually comes to, Ogon realises the places he wants to travel to will never live up to his dreams. He rushes over to Malachi's. Guide to Pronunciation and Meaning Ogon, pronounced O-gon, means youth. Niv, pronounced Ni-of, means brightness, radiance. Malachi, pronounced Ma-leki, means messenger of God. The Real Beginning Ogon loses Niv to his best friend Malachi. Ogon and Niv had been high school sweethearts, and the three of them had been inseparable, the three blind mice. Ogon stumbled onto the scene, the affair in full swing, the pair of them at it like otters in his best friend's bed. He'd seen a documentary about how otters held hands when they slept, but this right now was absolutely not cute. Ogon had been let inside by a still-stoned flatmate, the squawking pair growing louder as he raced down the long cement hallway toward that familiar sound. Knowing it was Niav behind the locked bedroom door, his teeth zinging like when foil shorts out your fillings. Some things can never be unseen. Thinking back on it now, he often wonders if maybe he should have just gone home instead of shouldering the door open. He often thinks of how he stood there like a gormless gobshite, oogling the romping quizlings. He expected Niav to blurt out it was a mistake, that this had never happened before. But it wasn't, and it had. Now to cause an immense uproar, chew the scenery like Al Pacino. But no words would come. Instead, he went for Malachi, but that buck-naked Egypt punched him hard. Weepily trudging back to his dorm, Ogon dumped Neve's stuff out the third-floor window. He never saw either of them again. Last he heard, they'd taken the trip to Indonesia. That summer passed in a violet daze, two elven bishops fooled around and fell in love, that spiteful song followed him everywhere, laptops, car radios, ringtones. On the solstice, he broke into his old high school and entered the history classroom where he'd first met Niamh. There, he downed a pint of whiskey and a packet of his father's blood-thinning medication. The End Some Common Misconceptions the nursery rhyme Three Blind Mice is about three bishops burned at the stake by Queen Mary I of England. Bloody Mary liked burning people, and 280 other religious dissenters met the same fate during her five-year reign. Most nursery rhymes are based on horrible real-live events. Ring-a-ring-a-rosies is about the plague. London Bridge is Falling Down is about child sacrifice. Jack and Jill were two young lovers thrown to their deaths. Ogon has confirmed the validity of these statements in conversations with the dead. The end is a beginning. Ogon is a magpie. He has black and white plumage and a sleek, elegant tail. Up close, his black plumage has an iridescent, violent sheen on the wings, but it turns glossy green on the tail. He coasted the thermals over Schlievgwillen Mountain, a half-mile high, as effortless as standing still. His new form had taken a bit of getting used to. The ruffle of his feathers, how he sensed minute changes in air current through his entire body. 
he swooped like black lightning, landing in the back garden of his family home on top of the small granite gravestone for Buster, his Jack Russell. The back door of the house opened, and a tiny wrinkled woman with glasses half the size of her face threw the heel of a batch loaf onto the paved walkway. Ogon flapped over, pecked some, then called at his mother. Every day you eat all my bread, she said, and never get no fatter, just like Ogon used to. Her shoulders hunched and she took the Padre Pio medal from beneath her blouse and kissed it. A sharp whistle pierced the air. Since becoming a magpie, Ogon had heard that whistle several times. It was warning him about a trapped soul, a violent soul. He had to deal with it. This was part of his job. He flew south following the whistle thirty-five miles to a ghost estate outside Drogheda, spotting from a mile off the violet shimmer of the haunted house. The neighbourhood was recovering well from the housing crash, and half of the houses that had lain vacant for nearly a decade were occupied. One of them, a detached two-storey red brick, was occupied by a man conducting a one-sided argument. Ogon perched on the windowsill. The man, mid-twenties, jabbed his index finger toward the corner of the living room wall, then struck, punching yet another hole in the plasterboard that bore a dozen already, his knuckles the colour of a Bloody Mary. A baby screamed upstairs. Ogon found the newborn writhing in his cot, and from the smell the nappy hadn't been changed in days. A woman shrieked. In the kitchen he found her listening intensely to the extractor fan, she was begging for a voice to stop, pleading, but then climbed onto the counter and slammed her head into the stove's aluminium hood, streaking the metal surface bloody red. There were other holes smashed into the walls, these with a sledgehammer. The couple had been working over the entire house as if searching for something, a wrong soul often manifested like this, driving the inhabitants to self-harm or murder-suicide. Ogon didn't have much time to intervene. He had seen how quickly people could kill each other just to stop the voices. He circled the building, paying particular attention to the structure. Nothing untoward. Sometimes it was a body nearby in a shallow grave, but the yard was well maintained, flower beds blooming with the first of summer, grass clipped. There was a scarcity of furniture within, almost Spartan decor. Perhaps this family had just moved in and, without signs of a recent grave, he could discount them as murderers. Something much older and malevolent was present. And then he saw it. Glistening within the crew-cut lawn, pink and pulsing, he swooped down to beak the worm and swallowed it, whole and wriggling. It was delicious, reminding him of ham, mixed with a little dirt. The dirt was the best bit. Kept him regular. From the lawn... He saw a row of bricks along the base of the house that appeared newer than the rest. A section of those bricks had also been removed and replaced, the mortar different. Concentrating, Ogon visualised the empty space beyond the bricks and his body dissolved, rematerialising on the other side. It always felt like plunging into a swimming pool, ears popping followed by a weird chlorine odour, but it was a neat trick. Within the shallow cavity beneath the house, there was a bundle wrapped in plastic, the scent of death masked with quicklime. Inside were two bodies, husband and wife. This close to the body, Ogon knew the tragic story. 
She killed him, and he deserved it. The bastard had a nasty gambling habit before the housing crash put him away. He attacked her, almost killed her. She stabbed him with a kitchen knife. Self-defense. Right now, the bastard was already in the dark place, flayed by a demon that looked like his wife. The end. But the woman remained to poison the building. There were gashes on her wrists, proof she had turned the knife on herself after the murder. Who had put the bodies here? That was the real reason she hadn't departed this plane. He summoned the woman's trapped soul to its body. The woman, Aoife, hovered over her corpse before Ogon guided her out of the building, upwards. The young couple in the house had returned to normalcy. The woman rushed into the living room, her husband staring wide-eyed at the holes he'd punched in the walls. They hugged each other and kissed, relieved it was finally over. Ogon guided the dead woman towards the light, moving from the dark to grey. You've been dead eight years, Aoife, but I only killed him yesterday. Dead time always moved faster. I'm not being punished for killing him? Self-defence, he replied, but suicide is a five-hundred-year sentence. She lurched to flee, but here he was all-powerful. Nobody escaped. I don't make the rules, I just follow them. We all follow them. She struggled, trying to fight him off, pulling towards the house and her decaying body. Still, they continued onward into the grey. Directions were meaningless. Only Ogon knew the way out. I'm sorry for your loss, he said, but we'll get to the grey place soon. It's not so bad, you'll see. Why do I care what some dumb bird says? Did you know magpies are the only non-mammals to recognise their own reflections? Why are you a magpie and not a raven or a crow? Crows are criminals, he replied. It's the punishment for being a low-level criminal, sentenced to be a crow. But magpies are thieves. Where the rumour began. Rossini's opera La Gaza Ladra, The Thieving Magpie, has a servant girl sentenced to death for stealing silver even though the magpie did it. It's a common misperception that magpies are thieves and that we steal shiny objects. In fact, shiny objects are extremely annoying. The glare hurts my eyes. What about my body? Aoife asked. Somebody will find it, eventually. You bastard, you're just leaving me there to rot? No burial? Your suicide sentence isn't your worst problem, he explained. The haunting and torture of that family. That's a millennium right there. A thousand years in the grey place. With Ogon concentrating, they dissolved and rematerialized in the grey place. Globules of prismatic light, souls, wandered chaotically, zigzagging and colliding like excited particles. Others adopted mournful poses and wandered, moaning. They didn't have to. They were free to do whatever they wanted. But many elected to remain penitent and dour, even though it had no outcome on their sentence. The grey place wasn't a punishment. It was more of a holding area, a place where souls contemplated their earthly behaviour before being allowed into the big house. They could form a jazz club for all the boss cared, but they continued moaning, rattling chains, posing like that screen painting. How did you transport us here? I can transport anywhere in the universe, but it's quite impossible to breathe on Mars, so I'm mostly on Earth. Then you can get inside the foundations of my house, get my body out? 
as much as he wanted to make whoever had hidden two corpses beneath that house pay. It wasn't his job. A visit to the big house. A hard-faced, soft-bellied man in a toga was standing on a wooden crate on a street corner, orating to no one in particular. Can one believeth there exists presently a brand of condom entitled Trojan, Homer said. Alas, it should evidently be noted that the Trojan horse, after infiltrating the outer defences, forthwith, in a clandestine attack, ejected hundreds of soldiers. Is this truly not an unfortunate implication for a prophylactic? Homer regarded his audience, which was much smaller than he usually got at the Greek theatre for his evening performance. Two people were present. Dali twisted the waxy tip of his drooping moustache, and Picasso was dressed like a matador. Neither of them applauded. Ogon swooped down and dropped a silver drachma in the pileous cap at Homer's feet. Happily, Homer cleared his throat to continue. The others groaned. Ogon flapped alone towards the big house. The light was diffuse like being inside mist. The buildings, cobblestone streets and people emitted luminosity. Sitting on a nearby bench, a man wearing a black three-piece suit was sheltering beneath a black umbrella. Edgar Allan Poe adjusted his sunglasses and scratched in his notebook with a quill. You really should have chosen the form of a raven, Poe said. Magpies have too much white. Ogon landed on the bench. Poe dripped his quill in the ink bottle, but it was empty. He glanced pleadingly at the bird. Ogon concentrated, and a bottle of the blackest Indian ink materialised. Hast thou ever read Jonathan Livingstone, Seagull? That seagull's such a poser, Ogon replied. Then... Because I'm a bird, I'm only supposed to read books about birds? Which postures an interesting conundrum, my half-raven friend. Exactly how doth one, being a bird that is, and thusly lacking thumbs, read a book? I can still peck the buttons on my Kindle, he replied. Quoth the magpie, nevermore. Ogon flapped off to find the boss. Although finding him wasn't exactly how it worked. The big house took whatever form you desired, and while this usually involved soft white clouds and angels with harps, for Ogon it was the flat share where Malachi lived, where he had found him with his fiancée Neve. The walls were translucent as jellyfish, and Ogon glided down the hallway to enter the bedroom, which looked exactly as it had that day, the bedsheets tussled, dirty jeans and socks piled in the corner. Malachi hadn't even cleaned up before Neve arrived. That's how routine their tryest had been. Ogon landed on the desk and a snap of his wing cascaded a laptop and geography textbooks onto the crusty floor. I'm not picking those up again, the boss said. His voice reverberated from everywhere. He had no face, no body. He was everything and nothing. Ogon squawked and got to the floor, lifted everything back onto the desk. You see everything, he said. So when do they die? The boss had promised Ogon that he'd be allowed to decide a punishment for Neve and Malachi. He'd get to reap their souls and ferry them to the dark place, let them suffer for a few millennia. That should be payback for how they destroyed everything he cared about. You've got work to do, the boss said. 
Time to take another one back. The room dissolved like sugar in water, and Ogon rematerialized on the tiled floor of a diner. His feathers spasmed, and he staggered a few steps. He hated it when the boss did that. The two men were arguing in a corner booth. Ogon took flight and landed on the shoulder of the larger man, with coiffed black hair and huge mutton chops. A half-eaten cheeseburger was oozing oil on his plate. Elvis jabbed his finger at Jim Morrison's shirtless chest. You can't keep being the same person throughout history, Elvis said. I mean, Michael Hutchins? Seriously? That's what you wasted your reincarnation on? Jim brushed his mane of hair out of his face and took a swig of whiskey. Being Plato with a guitar worked for you last time around, fat boy. But this isn't the 70s anymore. They have cell phones, but they don't use them to speak to each other on. They use them to write shit on the internet. Frizzy-haired Janis Joplin in the next booth over strummed her guitar. Don't just be one of the regular weird people this time, she said. Ogon guided Elvis to the jump point, a swirling portal that appeared in the diner's entranceway. Elvis was squeezed into the sequined jumpsuit he had barely fit into before his Las Vegas blowout, rows of fat bunching the seams. He turned to Ogon and said, What's an internet? The Residue of Life and Death The piercing whistle led Ogon to an industrial garment laundering facility outside Belfast. He'd been to the city many times, watching Neve and Malachy grow their family, waiting. The facility was empty because it was still a couple of hours until sunrise, yet Ogon went around to the Waldorf yard and found workers sheltering beneath a rusty piece of corrugated steel, smoking. Raindrops staggered down like shiny coins. He made his way inside, industrial presses squeezing out white bedsheets and towels for the hospitality industry. The windows towards the front had been sealed with cardboard, giving the appearance that the factory wasn't in use. This was an unscheduled night shift. Emer was reaching with her red raw hands into the mangle, a huge, gaping, black crusher of a thing that gripped the sheets and pressed them between solid rollers, wringing moisture out. The whistle ceased. The rollers stopped, but the mangle still pulsed with violet light. Life was sticky and didn't want to leave. Ogon had learned death always leaves a residue. Emer tugged at a knotted sheet caught in the inner mechanism. The mangle cranked forward, trapping the woman's hand, before it whirred into life, dragging her towards the crushing rollers. Ogon swooped down and pecked the off button, but the mangle was not deterred. The woman screamed, but her co-workers did not hear her above the growling machine. Ogon drove his beak into the power cable. Electricity sparked like fireworks, a wallop to his kidney that threw him off his feet. The whole facility went dark as Ogon stumbled onto his feet, beak scorched and sore. Workers rushed to Emer's assistance. She was alive and uninjured, but as the power came back on, so too did the mangle. It had maimed countless people over the last two years, because, Ogon saw, there was a trapped soul within its machinery. Ogon materialised inside the mangle, the trapped soul wedded to the mechanism. He gripped the soul in his beak and ripped. The soul split apart, most of its essence escaping into the ether. You have been dead two years, Ogan told the remains of the man. But just yesterday, 
I fell into that mangle. Take me to your body, Ogon commanded. The mangled soul swept a hundred yards east to the Lagan River. There, weighed with rocks, his body lay hidden in the silt. Ogon knifed the water and torpedoed the corpse, raising it to the surface. Somebody would find it. Somebody would bring the facility manager to justice. It was not his job to intervene, and, taking to the sky, corkscrewing with joy, he knew he had done the right thing. But then his wings seized and his wishbone froze in his chest. Ogon plummeted like a dead thing. The Beak of Things to Come A child's hands cup him gently, and he's being lifted off the pavement. The world snaps into focus, and the woman staring at him is Neov. Her son, Riley, found Ogon's twisted body on the pavement next to the lagon while they were walking to school. She takes him into her hands, and he meets her eyes. His heart quickens. He wants to kiss her, but he has witnessed the way she looks at Malachi, at their son. It was love. Now her green eyes widen in fear. The boy is strangely silent when moments ago he chattered about how they needed to save wild animals. He had been humming a magpie rhyme about a single magpie being bad luck. Fun fact. Magpies are symbols of happiness in Chinese culture. Koreans believe they deliver good news. In the myths of Native Americans, Navajo, Blackfoot, Cheyenne, we're their fateful allies. A particularly difficult death. Car tires screech, a horn blares. Neof sprints onto the road, her boy having taken the crossing without waiting for the traffic signal to change. He's directly in the path of an oncoming car. She throws herself at Riley, shoving him aside so the car crushes into her. Ogon is still in her hand, both of them thrown forward, tumbling along the road. She's staring at him, pleading with her eyes as her nose runs bloody. A wound at the back of her skull gapes. Neov dies. Her soul separates from her body. Riley is running to her. Ogon loves her too much to let her die. He summons his energy into her, and before he blinks out of existence, Neov sits up, uninjured. An Interrupted Ending There are no ends, just new beginnings. That's how it works, according to the boss. He said something about giving everybody a choice, but not everybody recognised an opportunity. In fact, most people believe there are strict rules forbidding them from intervening. Funny the things people cling to. Misguided, obviously. It was difficult for Ogon to grasp, because he was still reforming, but he knew the drill. Once as a dead human, and now as a dead bird. He was laid out on a black leather couch, the walls lined with books. He tuckered his wings behind his head, crossed his legs, and stared at the white ceiling. Did you know I was going to do that? Freud removed his glasses and fogged the lens, cleaning them on his lapel, and said, The question is, would you have still done it, had you known you would? He makes a fair point, the boss said. I guess it's time you took him back, Ogon. Freud stood straight now, his body rigid. He muttered under his breath, hands held in a shooing-off gesture, but by then Ogon was ushering him to the jump point. 
Why did I lose flight? Ogon asked. If I hadn't done anything wrong. Unresolved issues, he replied. We can get to the root of it with free association. I say a word, and you say whatever comes into your mind. You know I'm Irish, right? Those tricks don't work on us. But your dreams. I can analyse your dreams. Do you dream of big black dogs? Every magpie does. Freud pushed back, trying to escape, just like they always did, terrified of making a mistake. Ogon took him gently by the shoulder and shoved him through the portal. So, dear listeners, if you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. Myself, my editor Gary Dow, and our sound engineer, Mark Zanfardino, love hearing from our listeners, and we really do want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes, Acast, and other podcatchers, so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. Please also consider making a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page, so that we can keep the podcast up and running. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you cannot change it and you cannot sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors and violators will not be escorted into the afterlife. I'm off to do something exciting and mysterious. I'll see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.